We're starting a new series tonight, which is always exciting. Um, probably one of the toughest series that we'll be going through, and we're going to be um, continuing on our study in the book of Revelation. So last year, if you might remember, we started the book of Revelation, and we went through the first three chapters, the letters to the churches, but um, tonight we go from chapter four on to the end, and as we do, um, every time I start a new series, I always invite my wife to come and open in prayer so that um, I don't preach heresy because that's really, it could happen this time, really. So I'm going to invite my wife to pray for us. Okay, church, let's pray. Um, Father God, we lift up this series to you uh, in, uh, as our church really just dives head in um, in the book of Revelation. Uh, Lord, I pray that you will teach us uh, your ways, um, that you'll teach us uh, what it means to look forward to heaven, what it means um, for us to eagerly expect the return of Christ and what all that really entails. Um, Lord, a lot of us steer away from revelations and what it all means because I think we have convinced ourselves to believe that it's uh, it could it's unknown and it's hard but Lord um, help us to really know that there are solid truths that we can trust um, that it might not be about you know exactly the what and the how but it's about who and it's you that these end times and this book itself is about you what you're doing and what you desire for your people so help us to see that um, and help us to know uh, deeply who you are and to really be uh, expectant uh, for what you have in store for those you love Lord we especially pray for um, Pastor Steve in this series Lord I pray that you will really give him greater insight and wisdom uh, knowledge and understanding as he really unpacks um, a lot of symbolism, a lot of imagery, just a lot of uh, like poetic words, Lord. I pray that, yeah, you will really just, that the Holy Spirit will enlighten him um, that and that he will be able to faithfully, faithfully preach to us uh, what it is that you desire for us to know. So, Lord, we commit this series into your hands. We pray that you will use it powerfully in our lives, that we will be expectant um, and eager, and that through this series we will align ourselves more to you and your kingdom that is to come. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. <sighs> it's going to be a good series. All right, we're going to go to a video. Um, that's going to give us a little bit of an introduction to the book of Revelations. The book of the Revelation of Jesus. The author of this book, which is not called Revelations, by the way, is named at the beginning. It was written by John, which could refer to the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel and the letters of John, or it could be a different John, a messianic Jewish prophet who traveled about and taught in the early church. Whichever John it was, he makes clear in the opening paragraph what kind of book he has written. He calls it, first of all, a revelation or apocalypse. The Greek word is apokalypsis, and it refers to a type of literature very familiar to John's readers from the Hebrew scriptures and from other popular Jewish texts. Apocalypse has recounted a prophet's symbolic dreams and visions that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history and current events so that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. 
And John says this apocalypse is a prophecy, which means it's a word from God spoken through a prophet to God's people, usually to warn or comfort them in a time of crisis. By calling this book a prophecy, John's saying that it stands in the tradition of the biblical prophets and is bringing their message to a climax. And this apocalyptic prophecy was sent to real people that John knew. The book opens and closes as a circular letter that was sent to seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. Now, seven is a meaningful number for John. It's a symbol of completeness based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle in the Old Testament. And John has woven sevens into every single part of this book. Now, with this opening, John has given us clear guidance about how he wants us to understand this book. Jewish apocalypse is communicated through symbolic imagery and numbers. It is not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. Rather, John is constantly using these symbols that are drawn from the Old Testament, and he expects his readers to go discover what the symbols mean by looking up the text he's alluding to. Also, the fact that it's a letter means that John is actually addressing the situation of these first century churches. And so while this book has much to say to Christians of later generations, the book's meaning must first be anchored in the historical context of John's time, place, and audience. Which brings us into the book's first section, Jesus' message to the seven churches. John was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he saw a vision of the risen Jesus, exalted as king of the world. And he was standing among seven burning lights. And John's told this is a symbol of the seven churches in Asia Minor that's been adapted from the book of the prophet Zechariah. And Jesus starts addressing the specific problems that face each church. Some were apathetic due to wealth and affluence. Others were morally compromised. Their people were still eating ritual meals and sleeping around in pagan temples. But others among the churches remained faithful to Jesus, and they were suffering harassment and even violent persecution. And Jesus warns that things are going to get worse. A tribulation is upon the churches that will force them to choose between compromise or faithfulness. By John's day, the murder of Christians by the Roman Emperor Nero was passed, and the persecution of Christians by Emperor Domitian was likely underway. And so the temptation was to deny Jesus, either to avoid persecution or simply to join in the spirit of the Roman age. And Jesus calls them to faithfulness so that they can overcome or literally conquer. And Jesus promises a reward for everyone in these churches who does conquer. Each reward is drawn directly from the book's final vision about the marriage of heaven and earth. And so this opening section, it sets up the main plot tension that will drive the storyline in this book. Will Jesus' people endure? Will they inherit the new world that God has in store? And why is faithfulness to Jesus described as conquering? The rest of the book is John's answer. After this, John has a vision of God's heavenly throne room, and he describes it with imagery drawn from many Old Testament prophets. Surrounding God are creatures and elders that represent all creation and human nations, and they're giving honor and allegiance to the one true creator God who is holy, holy, holy. In God's hand is a scroll that's closed up with seven wax seals. It symbolizes the message of the Old Testament prophets and the sealed scroll of Daniel's visions. These are all about how God's kingdom will come here fully on earth as in heaven. But it turns out, no one is able to open the scroll until John hears of someone who can. It's the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David. He can open it. These are classic Old Testament descriptions of the messianic king who would bring God's kingdom through military conquest. Now, that's what John hears. 
But then what he turns and sees is not an aggressive lion king, but a sacrificed bloody lamb who's alive, standing there, and ready to open the scroll. Now, this symbol of Jesus as the slain lamb, this is crucially important for understanding the book. John's saying that the Old Testament promise of God's future victorious kingdom was inaugurated through the crucified Messiah. Jesus overcame his enemies by dying for them as the true Passover lamb so that they could be redeemed. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross was not a defeat. It was his enthronement. It was the way he conquered evil. And so this vision concludes with the lamb alongside the one sitting on the throne, and together they are worshipped as the one true creator and redeemer, and the slain lamb begins to open the scroll. It's a symbol of his divine authority to guide history to its conclusion. Which brings us to the next section of the book. All right. See, if you kept watching the video, then I wouldn't have to preach. Um, real quick summary of, of some of those key points about the book of Revelation. Um, the author John um, writes this book, and uh, it's God that gives John this revelation, this, this image of what is to come. Um, the current context of this letter, and it was mentioned briefly, but uh, Christianity is not the go-to religion. It is actually, um, if you're a Christian, you are being persecuted, tortured, and murdered because of your faith. And that was the scene that, that John uh, writes this letter and then sends this letter out into these seven churches. Uh, and you, this is really important. It's, for, it's really important for us to understand because before we understand this. Too many times when we read the Bible, we read it too directly as if God was writing to John and John wrote to us. But we've got to remember, John didn't write to us. John wrote to the Christians or the context of the people at that time. And then what we take from that is, is how the Spirit of God then speaks to us. But we've really got to understand that that's the context. It's not a good context. Christianity is is not being celebrated at the time. Uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, um, Jesus says, there will be a great tribulation, which means a great trial, such has not been from the beginning of the word until now, no and never will be. And, and these are the words from Jesus. And, and that's what Jesus is describing. He's describing that there will be a time where trial will, will just continue to grow. And that's this season that, um, that is in Revelation. Uh, the Revelation that was recorded by John was also a letter. It's a letter that was circulated to the seven churches mentioned in chapters two and three. So it is, it is the, I would say it is the hardest book in the Bible to understand. Um, I've been preaching for 17 years now. And this is the first time that I've done a series in the back end of the book of Revelations. And to be completely honest, it's because I was chicken. It's really hard. Um, like, <laughs> to tell you that I'm going to share um, my insights from this book would be a complete lie. Because I'm learning on the go. I'm learning as, as you're learning as well. So I just want to set some parameters around this series. It's going to be a nine-week series, so strap yourselves in. We're going all the way to Christmas. Um, I just want to set some, some boundaries before you all become disappointed and angry at me, okay? Firstly, I am as much a student as you are. As I said, being one of the most difficult books, what we're going to do is we're going to go through this book systematically, 
in, in chapter by chapter kind of format. But as I said, I'm not preaching from a, a, a higher place of understanding. Um, I'm pretty deep in this as well. So, um, and that's going to lead to the second um, uh, parameter is you will have questions as I have questions. And if you come and ask me for answers, I may or may not have the answers, most likely not, because you all ask very good questions because you're all very well educated. And it would be silly of me to think in this book, especially in the book, most of the Bible, but especially in the book of Revelations, um, for me to say, yeah, I, I know how this is going to roll, because uh, honest, honestly, I don't. And this might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable that your pastor is um, not fully confident in what he's about to preach, but it's better than you being disappointed later. So, you know, you can't have everything. Um, my goal in this series is to give you the overarching perspective of the letter and some key thoughts and themes within it. Um, but to go word for word, verse for verse, um, that's what your life groups are for. And so thank you to all of our life group leaders. Um, and, and in your life groups, you will be hopefully studying the book of Revelations as we go along with our devotional. Um, and that's where you can really um, flesh out uh, the meaty stuff. So thank you once again in advance to our life group leaders for doing the hard work. So how do we approach this series? How do we approach the, the most difficult book in the Bible? There's three things. One, with lots of prayer. Lots of prayer. I'll be honest, I have prayed more this week for this series than any other series that I've done this year. And it's because I am legit not confident of my own knowledge. Um, I think this is a very important book. Um, you know, just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not important. It's very important. Um, but we need to approach it with lots of prayer. Secondly, with lots of humility. Like you might be like, well, I know this book. I know what Revelation is all about. And that's great. And, and, and you might know. But what, uh, what Revelation talks about is a lot of stuff that's not necessarily concrete, nor as black and white as you may or may not think it might be. I think when I was 25, I thought Revelation was very black and white. And as I got older, every year it became grayer and grayer and grayer. And that was very uncomfortable at the beginning. But now I'm at a point where I am very comfortable with the fact that I don't know everything in this. And, and I don't think we will. I don't think that on this side of eternity, we will completely understand everything in the book of Revelation. Nor do I think that that's what God wants. I don't think God wants us to know every single bit. You know, and, and that's what the video is saying is there's a lot of numbers and symbols and imagery and a lot of people have tried to take these numbers and try to put them in, put them in a formula and go, this is the end of the world and this is when Jesus is going to come back. And every time they're wrong. No one has got that right. right? We're talking thousands of people. They've all got it wrong. But I just don't think that's what God wants. There's, are there things that God wants us to learn? 100%. But we just need to make sure that we're approaching it with lots of humility. And thirdly, we want to approach the book with an open heart and mind. 
we want to approach the book of Revelation with, with the, the stance of, Lord, what do you want to teach me? And that might be slightly different to the next person, and that's okay. Because God speaks to us individually, even with the same words. And so I hope that um, this series is going to be a, a meaningful series. Um, as I said, I'm going to wrestle. I'm going to really um, do my best to do the work alongside of our leaders to um, give to you um, the, the best of what we know. Um, but really, we're leaving this series up to God um, to speak to you, which I think is the best place um, to be. Is that all right? Everyone good? You want to leave now? That's fine. I won't take it personally. But if you don't turn up next week, I'll know why. It's okay. Um, So tonight we begin in chapter 4. And the scene is set in verse 4, chapter 1. After this I looked, and this is John speaking, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So it's from this perspective that John is going to share God's revelation, God's thoughts and dreams and desires from here till the end of the book. John's going to record what is to come on earth from the perspective from heaven. Now, straight away, that should bring about question marks because none of us have ever been there. So straight away, if, if you're one of those like, I, you know, this is black and white, I, I just don't, I, I would ask you to wrestle with that again because none of us know what heaven's like. None of us have been there. And so, you know, we just want to make sure we're, we're humbly reading this book. Verse 2 and 3. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. So the first thing that John sees from his perspective from heaven is that he sees a throne. A throne, if you don't know what a throne is, a throne is the chair where the king or queen would sit on and rule his or her kingdom. Now the language that's used to describe the throne and the one that's sitting on it and the one that's sitting on it is God. Uh, The language that's used is uh, words like jasper and ruby, a, a rainbow that shone like an emerald. And this is what John uses to describe what he sees. It's the most exquisite, expensive, amazing gems. And that's the, that's the kind of language he's using to describe God who sits on the throne. Now, what's interesting is what we need to understand about a lot of the language in the book of Revelation is That's just the way John saw it. If you and I were there and we saw the exact same thing, depending on our context, we would describe it in a different way. Right? It's like, it's like when, when, when two people see the same thing, depending on their context, they just see things differently. Right? Um, one of the best examples is, um, there was a wedding, 
uh, between a, a Caucasian uh, male and an Indian lady. And at the end of a wedding, what do you do when they walk out? Um, at mostly Caucasian weddings, they grab rice and they throw it as the couple walks out. Oh, rose petals, but rice. And so all these Caucasian people are celebrating, throwing all these rice into the aisle. And the Indian side of the family were mortified because they're like, why are you throwing our food like that? The same thing, different context, completely different understanding. So John's using the language that only he knows. And we've got to understand this. It's a human description of a heavenly thing. Verse 4 and 5. Surrounding the throne. Now remember, this is setting the scene. This is setting the picture. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Let's pause there. Now, you're going to see a lot of numbers, and you're going to see a lot of imagery and a lot of symbolism um, throughout the whole book of Revelation. Really quickly, the 24, uh, the, the 24 thrones and the elders, um, people say that they, that represents the entirety of mankind. So all the leaders of mankind, they're the ones that are sitting on their thrones. The number seven is the number of completion. Um, so the seven lamps representing the seven churches, because that's who God is addressing now, once again, the language, listen to the language as he describes the, thr- the throne. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbling and peals of thunder. Now, what that actually was, we will never know. But when John saw it and he had to write down what he saw, that's how he described it. I remember going bowling with one of, the, uh, one of my young kids. And when you go bowling, if you're decent anyway, you, you know, you roll the bowling ball down and as it hits the pins, it makes that, I don't know what sound it makes, give it a go. But I remember my, my, my kid was like, wow, that just sounds like thunder, right? And in my head, I was like, that just sounds like 10 pins, right? But to, to my child, that's how they would describe that sound. Now, once again, I'm, I'm, this is what I'm saying. It's a human limited description of what they can see and sense and feel, right? But it's of a heavenly thing. And so we've just really got to understand that. John uses this, and I guess what we really need to take from this is he uses these words to describe the situation, and the descriptions are used to design, to, to appeal and overwhelm our imaginations. Because if you actually sit there and if you actually think about it, that there's this throne and the one who looked, who was sitting on the throne looked like gems and then there was lightning and thunder coming out of that throne, you would be like, wow, you're a psycho. Like something's wrong with your head, right? But we've got to understand, that's just the way John saw it. And that's the way he described it. It's his imagination. Verse 6 to 9. Also front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, 
a sea of glass, right? Clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So we see the throne. We see the elders. We see the seven candles. And now we see four creatures. Now, Sometimes we read this and we automatically think we saw a lion, we saw an ox, but actually read it really carefully. It says the first living creature was like a lion, right? Like an ox, like a man, like a flying eagle. So it's not that it was actually a lion, right? And so these are the things, as you're reading through Revelation, you've got to pick up on these things. Now, John described four creatures Right, and, and these four creatures are actually images that were taken out of the Old Testament. And specifically uh, for this one, we see this in Ezekiel um, chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. Their faces look like this, and this is talking about the revelation in Ezekiel. Their faces look like this. Each of the four had a face of a human being, and on the right side, each had a face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox, each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading out upward, each wing touching that of the other creature on the other side, and each had two wings, two other wings covering its body. Right? So it's not that John is just making this up from nowhere. He's read this. He's heard about this from the Old Testament, and this is the language that he's using to describe what he's seeing. Right? A little bit more symbolism, right? The lion. The lion is a synonym for great strength. Ox, right? The cow. The synonym of new or young, as in a sprout or a calf. The man face is a synonym for some element, perhaps the partial likeness of God, of humankind. And the flying eagle is a synonym for purposeful action or purpose. So each of these creatures, what it, what John says, it looked like this. He's getting this language from the Old Testament. And this Old Testament language, all are intentional in describing certain things. As I said, I can't go into more than that because we'd be here all night. But take that and go to your life group leaders and ask them to explain all the symbolism. All the life group leaders are ready to go. <laughs> Just throw them under the bus. Come on. Man. So John sees these four creatures. And it's not just about who these creatures are, but John then goes to describe what these four creatures are, are doing. And he says, day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now the word holy means to set apart. It's to set apart. So one that is holy was one that was set apart. And it was God who was set apart. 
And so we see these four creatures and their whole existence, all they do day and night is to honor and worship God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And that's their description of God. That he is the one that is set apart from anyone, set apart from anything. The one that is set apart past, present, and future. Right? Who was, who is, and who is to come. And that's what they're doing. They're just worshipping God. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures gave Give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall, uh, fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our, our Lord and God, to receive glory, Honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will that will your will they were created and have their being. So we see these four creatures worshiping God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And every time the four creatures would declare that, then the twenty-four elders would then go, they would then bow down to the throne, to God again, and then they would honor and worship God. And they would say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And the picture is that this would just be going on and on and on. And this is what John saw. So John's looking into heaven, and this is the way John sees heaven. And that's the end of chapter one, uh, chapter four. So there's a few things that now we've sort of seen the picture that John has described to us. There's a few observations that I want to um, make out of this passage that can really help us. Because sometimes, sometimes we read a passage or we hear about a passage and it's a great passage and you see all these great things and then you ask the question, well, what's it got to do with me? And as much as that's not the most important question, it is an important question. So what are some things that we can take out from this passage I don't even know how many. I think we have three. Okay, number one, God is the center on the throne. God is, sorry, God is in the center and on the throne. There's two things in that. The picture that John draws for us of heaven is firstly that in the middle of heaven is God himself. He is the central being of heaven. And not only is he in the center, but he is elevated and he's sitting on the throne, meaning he is the ruler. He is the ruler of heaven. And this is something that we really need to understand. And I say this all the time, but we get confused because we think that we are the center of the universe. We think that our life, this life rotates around me. But this passage shows us this is not the case. In the center of the universe is God. He is the focus point. He will and always will be the focal point, not you and I. 
See, not only is he in the middle, not only is this the focus of our worship, but he's sitting on the throne. This shows us that God is not just central, but he's authoritative. He has ultimate authority in our universe. We bow down to him and we serve him and we worship him, not the other way. But so many times we get this mixed up. So many times we think of God as existing to help us. Think about your prayers. If you would actually document what you pray and you actually study what you pray, so much of our prayers is not God, you are center and exalted. It's God, you need to help me because I'm center. I'm the main character and you're the magical genie that's meant to help me. And we get this wrong. We get this wrong on earth and I promise you when you get to heaven, you will see this and it is, that's the way it's meant to be. It's God that's in the middle and it's God that is exalted, not us. Remember, God is the creator. We are creation. God exists to be worshipped by his creation and this is what it's going to look like on the last day and it's going to be with God on the throne. The second thing we need to understand is God on the throne actually brings us hope. Remember the context of this letter, the letter is first and foremost sent. (laughs) There's someone at the door. Sorry, it's because I'm the only person that can see that way. The, the letter is, um, is written in the context of persecution, of these Christians that were living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. Knowing that this was what was to come, think about it, right? If, we're, if these Christians are being oppressed, their, their, their families and their friends are being carried off to be tortured and persecuted and some ultimately killed, and we read this story that one day, that the end of our existence, that this is what's going to wait for us. This is what the world's going to look like. It should bring us hope. Because it's going to remind us that the persecution and the pain is not going to be forever. To know that God, that the God that they are worshipping will be victorious, that at the end of the day, it will be God that is sitting on the throne, not Caesar. It would have brought these Christians hope through their time of suffering and tension. And in the same way, it should bring us hope as well. As we think about what does the end of the world look like, you've got to understand, we don't really live in paradise. And I know sometimes we get mixed up and we we might think that we have somewhat semi-decent lives, but you really just have to turn on the news And you realize that the world that we live in is not necessarily that great. 
And actually, it's, it's regardless of how much money you have or how good your job is or how popular you are. The world we live in is broken at best. The fact that we're sitting in the middle of a pandemic should be a real reminder that actually this was kind of sucks. You know? Like... We're not li- like we're not in heaven by any means, and we have to be reminded of this. But what the awesome thing is is, no matter what you're going through right now, whether it be a health issue, whether it be a relational issue, whether it be a a, a future or a security issue, no matter what anxieties and and worries that you have in your life, and even for some of you, it might be persecution, it might be oppression. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, God will be victorious. And it will be God that's sitting on the throne. Now, once again, we live in sunny Sydney. Well, not sunny today, but usually sunny Sydney. You know, and, and if I had asked you, hey, how many of you were persecuted because of your faith this week? It'd be pretty close to a zero percent. But you go... If you were to go and talk to Christians in China, if you were to go talk to Christians in the Middle East, if you were to go and talk to Christians in North Korea, that persecution and oppression is very real. So this hope, this hope that God will rule and reign the universe once again, that's huge. It changes your attitude and it changes your perspective on the way we live our lives. Finally, we're called to worship our God. We were created and called for the worship of God. Now we see this worship in the form of song and chant in Revelation 4. That heaven shows this picture of God on the throne and everyone around, whether it be creature or elder or church representative or whoever it is, their sole purpose of that is to honor and worship God. And we think that sometimes we get mistaken that that's what's going to be in heaven. But I think what we need to realize is, no, no, that's actually what's meant to be now too. Now, I'm not saying we should all quit our jobs, stand in a circle, hold hands, sing Kumbaya every day. But our lives, whether it be in prayer, whether it be in song, whether it be the way we think, the way we live, the way we spend money, the way we raise our families, the way we love our children, the way we love each other, all of these things and everything that we do, needs to be an act of worship to our God. That's the purpose of our life. Remember, we exist for God, not the other way around. But that's the problem. The problem is our context is wrong. The reason why we don't live a life of worship, the reason why God is not center, is because we are center. Because you are center. The reason why you're so full, 
Be careful. So full of thinking about yourself and thinking about your future and thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow is because you are at the center of your existence. But Revelations is going to show us you are not. God is. And if God is at the center of our existence, of our lives, and of our universe, then everything we do, everything we do, the big and the small, everything we do needs to be an act of worship to our God. See, it's not a question of do we worship in our lives, but it's a question of what do we worship in our lives. The word worship simply means to acknowledge and express adoration towards something or someone, deep love and respect towards something or someone. We all worship something. Right? Some of us worship money. Now, you don't want to admit it. That's okay. But you have a deep respect and love for money and what money can do. For some of us, it's our careers. For some of us, we exalt our career over everything else. For some of us, you know, it could be idols. You know, it could be famous people. You know, it could be TV shows. It could be relationships. It could be families. It could be our children. There are so many things that people worship in this world. But do you know what the number one biggest area of worship is outside of God? It's ourselves. We worship ourselves. Why? Once again, because we think that we are in the center of the universe and we genuinely think, and I know this is going to be hard to admit, but we genuinely think that we are the most important being on earth. And that's why we worship ourselves. And I know that sounds really weird, right? Because, you know, when did you stand before a mirror and go, holy, holy, holy is you? You know, how awesome are you? You know? Yeah, you might not do that, but I promise you, you show me your schedule, you show me your bank balance, I'll tell you who you're worshipping. I'll tell you who you're living for. And for most of us, it's not God because God is not at the center of our existence. But just like the elders, the 24 elders that were sitting on their thrones, what they would do is, and Scripture says, they would lay down their crown before God. They would lay down what they had and and they would lay down their authority, their achievements and their power. They would lay them down before God and they would worship and honor God. And that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. We're called to lay down our crowns and honor and worship God. We're the ones that should be crying out, you are worthy, O O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. This is the call on our lives to adore God and to worship him. This is how John described what he saw from his perspective when he saw heaven, when he saw God, when he saw the throne. And I wonder tonight how how you would describe your universe and where God would be in that universe today. Would God be, as John said, would God be center of your life? 
and exalted and sitting on the throne as the highest authority in your life? Or would God be on the peripheral? Would God be on the edge? Would God be an additional option? The question to ask is this, who's sitting on the throne of your life? Because if God's not sitting on the throne, someone else is or something else is. Whether it's you, whether it's an idol, whether it's a career or finance, who's the center of your universe? Is it God or is it you? And as I said last week, you and I, we make terrible gods. We're, we're terrible gods. We can't do anything. We have no control. We, we're powerless. We're selfish. And after 50, 60, 70 years, our physical bodies will stop and we'll stop breathing and we die. What kind of a God dies? Apart from Jesus Christ who died on the cross. <laughs> Had to put that in there. But he came back, right? Okay, so who do you trust? Who's at the center? Who's at the center of your, your perspective of your universe? Is it you or is it God? Our creator God who was and is and is to come. Let's pray.